tracking the amazing growth of the first century church to challenge and inspire the 21st century church. This is Unstoppable Church, Then and Now, recorded on location in Israel, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, Malta and Italy. Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont is in conversation for the next 30 minutes with David Taverner. For this second conversation, Mike, we're still here in Jerusalem. We were looking at the subject of commanded last time. Just just sort of recap for us briefly, if you would. Yeah, we started in our first episode looking at Luke's story of how the early church was absolutely unstoppable. And we began by seeing how uh, Jesus spent the 40 days after his resurrection teaching his disciples, talking with them about the kingdom of God, explaining what that meant in the light of his resurrection. And we noted in particular how Jesus gave them this command, and that was not to leave this city that we're looking out over now, despite the fact that the religious authorities were against them. Don't leave here. Wait, was his command. Wait because there's a promise coming and it's that promise that we're going to be thinking about today. Let's just uh, explain maybe where we are. We're looking, as you say, over towards the old city, the the classic view of Jerusalem with the golden dome there in the distance. (laughs) Yeah, this is the view that probably most people think of, isn't it? Or that would pop up first if you do an internet search for uh, photos of Jerusalem. We're on the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east side of Jerusalem. Uh, separated by the Kidron Valley down below us. And the Mount of Olives where we are, it's a, it's a two-mile, three-kilometre-long limestone ridge uh, to the east of the city. Uh, actually towers up a couple of hundred feet uh, above the city uh, on the other side. And from, oh, as, as early as the third millennium BC, this served as the city's graveyard. Jews don't bury and they didn't used to bury in ancient times they're dead within the city walls they were buried outside the city walls Uh, and so stretching out down below is there are thousands upon thousands uh, of Jewish tombs and graves because in Jewish thinking this is the best place to be buried because when Messiah returns in their thinking he's going to return here enter through the gates opposite us and they will be the first to rise and to welcome him. So it's seen as quite a prestigious uh, place for Jews to be buried. But going back to Jesus himself, this was one of his favourite spots that he used to come to. Just over the top of the hill on the other side was that village of Bethany where his friends lived and he often stayed there. But down below us here uh, on the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know that that was a place of peace that Jesus often used to retreat to uh, from the hustle and bustle of the city opposite us there. From whichever direction you come to Jerusalem, you're always going to go up. Yeah, which is why, uh, you know, a lot of the Psalms talk about let's go up to Jerusalem. It's on top of the uh, mountainous ridge uh, in, in the central area of Judea, as it was called in those days, Israel, as we call it today. Uh, So it is perched very high up. So you always went up to Jerusalem. But this here where we are, as we look across now to the west, you know, we are above even the top of that golden dome of the mosque where the temple once stood. So, yeah, this is really the highest point in 
this area. You'd have to go to one of the mountains up in the north, Mount Hermon or something like that, to really get a lot higher. And maybe not surprising, because we can see and hear uh, lots of tourist groups uh, gathering. This is a sort of panoramic view of the old city, <laughs> isn't it? As well? Yeah, this is, the, this is the classic view. So even as we're sitting here, we can see coach after coach coming with busloads of tourists to to look over the city and it's a fabulous sight looking straight ahead yeah we can see the golden roof of the 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 dome of the rock there and the alaska moss and and just to the south of that the city of zion which was david's original city we can we can see the walls of the city stretching out there so it's a fantastic panoramic view and guides love to bring people here so they can point out the various things where the church of the holy sepulcher is and you get something of a sense of the proportion of the city you also get a sense of how small it is really uh in, in terms of the whole size of the, the walled city. So it's a very classic place. And even as we're talking, uh, listeners will no doubt hear coaches coming and going and, and tourists calling and shouting. And the photographers, there are always photographers up here wanting to take uh, the photos of people with that classic view behind them. But this is where something clearly, truly significant happened all these thousands of years ago. Yes, this spot very close to where we are is where Jesus' ascension took place. Ascension, big religious word that, isn't it? It simply means he's going back up to heaven, returning to his rightful uh, place to the Father. And just round the corner from where we are, there's a spot that is now a Muslim shrine, but you and I have been in it previously where there in the rock bed there's an indentation that is supposed to be the impression of the very foot of Jesus as he left this earth. I think probably I take that one with a pinch of salt. But certainly very close to where you and I are sitting now. We can't be 100% sure where and there are different sites marking it because the New Testament doesn't make it clear. But I find it incredible that very close to where you and I are sitting right now is where our Lord Jesus return to his father back in heaven well read again the verses from acts just to remind us of uh, how luke recorded this yeah well let's read from acts chapter one and we'll just go back a few verses to overlap slightly with what we looked at in our first episode and we'll start reading from verse four so this is after the resurrection towards the end of that period of 40 days that jesus spent with his disciples On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And while they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So after that remarkable incident, they walked from here across to the old city that we're looking at. Yeah, and it's, what well, it, it's a Sabbath day's journey, so that was about half a mile, uh, five-eighths of a kilometre, that, that sort of distance. And you can see it really is quite close. Uh, we're not exactly sure where it is that they went. We can't be sure of the exact room that they went to. Uh, but, but somewhere just across there, so close to where we are, they went back and began to pray and pray and pray about this Holy Spirit that had been promised them. One of the last things that Jesus said to them before he left them. Now, I'll come back to that promise in a second, but the ascension, I mean, you need to explain that. I mean, what on earth was going on? <laughs> well, amazing, isn't it? Uh, here is Jesus sort of, you know, going up, 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 up before their very eyes. Now, it would be very easy to sort of um, mysticise this and say, well, you know, it was just a way of describing some experience that they were aware that Jesus now left them. But the interesting thing is Luke was so convinced of the historicity of this event that he records it twice. Oh. So his gospel, we referred in our previous episode to the fact that Luke wrote a gospel as well as the book of Acts. And his gospel ends with this event, the ascension, Jesus returning to his Father in heaven. And his second volume, Acts, starts with exactly the same event, Jesus returning to heaven. Now, for someone who says that he carefully researched everything that he did, that instantly tells me this was really important. This wasn't, oh, and by the way, Jesus then went. There was something about this event that not only sort of gripped the hearts and imagination of the early Christians, there was something about it that must have been incredibly significant for Luke to have recorded it twice for us. So what was that significance? Well, the significance is this is, first of all, the father coming to take his son home. In the Old Testament, clouds often symbolize the presence of the Father. Think of the tabernacle, for example, the cloud used to descend upon it as a symbol that this was where God could be found. So the fact that clouds come, Jesus is taken up on the clouds, speaks to us of this is Father coming to take his son home. This is Father saying once again, this is my son in whom I am well pleased which is how the story began as Jesus is baptised. So the first significance is the father takes the son home, pleased with what his son has done. His mission is accomplished. Job done. Job done, sin paid for, Satan and death conquered once and for all. So this is the affirmation of the father that his work is finished. So that's the first significance of this. I think the... Um, second significance is and it's one that's often missed because when Jesus went back to heaven I find this mind-blowing he went back different to how he came now when he came John describes it as the word becoming flesh this mystery of the incarnation and God taking human form here on earth but 
in the ascension, God now takes his humanity back to heaven with him. Jesus goes back not as some sort of spirit. He doesn't sort of leave his body behind here and his spirit returns to heaven. He takes his human body with us. Now, that is so exciting. Jesus has taken a human body into heaven. There is now a place in heaven for humanity. What incredible hope that gives us. I think the third thing that the Ascension speaks of is the fact that Jesus is now reigning with his Father in heaven. We often get glimpses of this in other passages in the New Testament, like in the book of Ephesians, for example. And when Jesus went back to heaven, he went back not to sort of float around on a cloud somewhere. He went back to sit at his Father's right hand, to sit at a place of rule and authority and honour which is sitting at the right hand of someone always meant. And that becomes a very uh, significant fact that Jesus is now reigning in heaven and this truth gripped the early Christians. This truth motivated. This truth is one of the things that made the church unstoppable. That our Jesus is reigning in heaven and Nothing can therefore stop him and stop us. But what I love about, well, I think I love it, and sometimes I hate it, but you'll see what I mean in a minute. What I love about that is in the book of Acts, what we will see is that because Jesus is reigning in heaven, we will see some amazing things experienced by the church. We'll see thousands responding to their bolt preaching. We'll see miracles and, and healings. We'll see an explosion of mission. We'll see people getting saved. Why? Because Christ is now reigning in heaven. But equally, because Christ is now reigning in heaven, we will also see the church experiencing opposition and persecution. It's not that Jesus has got off the throne. He is still on the throne. But because he is on the throne, the church will at times be opposed. Why? Because while there are many that love that message, there are also many who hate it, who reject it, who reject him. And so because Jesus is on the throne, we will experience both at times. We will experience miracles and salvation and healing. But we will also at the same time experience opposition and rejection at all because Jesus is reigning in heaven. Some will love that and some will hate that. There's a danger then that we can sort of not appreciate the fact that Jesus is still at the right hand of God. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that he is still there at the right hand of God should be one of those things that gives incredible impetus and confidence to the church today. We, we do not have to be apologetic with our message. We do not have to go out with, excuse me, would you mind if I possibly shared this little thought or possibility uh, with you? You know, we can be bold. We have to be wise. You know, it doesn't mean we have to suddenly go out and blot the gospel out uh, at the first opportunity. There are ways of doing it, but we do not have to be apologetic for this. Our Jesus is reigning and ruling still in heaven, calling people to himself, inviting them to become part of his uh, exciting kingdom and building with him what he is building. And some will love that and some will respond to that. But let's be clear, just as we see in the book of Acts, some will also hate that as well. I said that we would come back to talk about the promise. Mm. 
in the words you read from Acts, it was the Father's promise. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? In fact, I noticed just even as I was reading um, the text now, Jesus talks, first of all, about don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, referring to the Holy Spirit. But then as they go on, he also goes on to make the promise in in the verses that follow uh, when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So, in fact, it's almost like a double promise. The Father promises it and the Son promises it as well. Why? Well, because there's no division between the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are absolutely one in this. So it is the Father's promise and equally is Jesus's promise. I love it, a double promise like that. Wow. In our day and age, we talk about, you know, promises, promises, which kind of sometimes means people don't keep their promises. Yes, uh, and that is the very opposite of what we see throughout the whole Bible, not just the New Testament or the book of Acts. But God is a God who keeps his promises. One of the things we're unused to in our culture is people don't keep promises. And we're so used to perhaps, sorry to any politicians listening, but, you know, politicians perhaps in particular are renowned as making many promises and once they've got in, they don't want to keep any of them or they want to readjust them to their own liking. But the thing that stands out again and again throughout the Bible is that God makes promises that he keeps. Why? Because he is true and he is truth. And again, those are concepts that we're a a bit uncomfortable with very often culturally in the West today. The idea that there is such a thing as an absolute truth, but God is truth. So when God says something, you know, he says what he means And what he says and what he means is what he does. So the promises of God can be trusted. And I think I would say two things. One is I see that in the Bible again and again. When God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Now, it's not always immediate. Sometimes there is a delay. Sometimes God has to work things out in situations, in people, sometimes in us, in getting our hearts into the right place, in causing us just to learn how to wait for him. But again and again in the Bible, there is not one promise that God makes that he doesn't ultimately keep. And and second, um, the other thing I've experienced is this is true in my own life. In other words, you know, we can take this and try it out. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So if you get a promise of God in the Bible, well, taste it, try it, we would say. Go on, try God out and see. Take God at his word. Sometimes there are some conditions we've got to put into place uh, before we can see that promise fulfilled. Sometimes we have to wait, but God is a God who keeps his promise. And yeah, in my own life, I've just seen that come true again and again as millions of Christians around the world and throughout the ages have done. God is a God who keeps his promise and that's why we can build our lives on them. If these followers, these disciples, these apostles who heard this promise were journalists, I think they might ask those classic questions, who, what, when, where, why? (laughs) Which of those do you want me to answer first? <laughs> Who is the Holy Spirit? You know, what's this all about? Where will it happen, etc.? Yeah. Well, look, who is the Holy Spirit? Jesus had promised back in John 14, 15, 16, that he would send another one like him. I will send you another 
counsellor, another advocate, some translations put it. The Greek word is a parakletos. That means someone who comes alongside to help you, someone who comes alongside to speak up on your behalf. So this is going to be someone whom Jesus is going to send to come alongside and be our sustainer and our helper. It becomes clear in the whole of the Bible that this Holy Spirit is it's not a power. It is not an influence. This is no one less than God himself. Christians believe in one God who simultaneously exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How can one being exist in three persons at the same time? Well, let's face it, that is something of a mystery. But if God can't be a mystery, then what can in life but the illustration I often use is the illustration of a cube. Look at a cube, what have you got? One cube. And yet that one cube is made of three surfaces, three dimensions that run all the way through that whole cube. And wherever you cut in that cube, those three dimensions intersect. One cube, three dimensions. One God, yet three persons being that one God. So the Holy Spirit... Uh, is no one less than God himself. Here is the Father, here is the Son promising that when Jesus returns to heaven, he would then send God the Holy Spirit to come and fill us, live within us, to motivate and energize us. Now, not from external things like tablets of stone in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, but from an internal motivation as God, the Holy Spirit. Wow. God, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. That's the promise of Jesus and the promise he makes wow, really close to where we are sitting today. But, you know, Jesus had spent those 40 days, we heard in our last conversation, teaching about the kingdom. So, you know, couldn't those followers have just sort of lived off of that, if you like? Well, I think the short answer is no, because the thing is with uh, teaching on its own, whenever it's tested, you're likely to give it up. So it's as if Jesus and the Father knew that what we would need is, is an inner motivating power, an inner motivating force to help us take hold of those promises, to help us take hold of those commands. Uh, an inner change that would be needed. I mean, the first thing we'll see in our upcoming episode about the coming of the Spirit is how the disciples are utterly transformed, renewed. They become almost like new people from within with this energizing, renewing power of the Holy Spirit. And without an experience of the Holy Spirit, frankly, all we're left with is legalism. We're left with just trying hard. You know, Jesus makes these nice commands. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow, that is the most powerful teaching in the whole world. If only everyone did that, the world would be a different place. But the truth is we can't do that. I can love my neighbor while it suits me. I can love God while I'm getting what I want out of him. And so what all of us need is that inner energizing, motivating presence of the Spirit that woos us and leads us into being able to do this. So it's not just a law, a commandment, but something that we can delight and respond to because of this inner work of the Holy Spirit. 
So without the Holy Spirit, without this promise of Jesus, you know, all we're left with really is, is, is trying to be a Christian uh, with our best efforts and best energy, trying to pull our socks up and them constantly falling down. And it sounded like the response or the outcome of that promise would have far-reaching effects. That's certainly what Jesus uh, expected, isn't it? You know, um, sometimes today, experiences of the Holy Spirit can be restricted to a nice experience you have in a meeting. Or, you know, oh, I felt so warm, I felt so woozy when I was prayed for. But clearly what Jesus is expecting here is that this energizing, transforming power of the Holy Spirit would would be something that would change us in order to do something, in order to send us out. If I read uh, verse 8 again, what Jesus said was, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And here's the promise. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here where we are now, in all Judea, in the area round about, in Samaria, to the north of here, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the promise of the Holy Spirit is not just a feel-good factor. It is to energize us and motivate us to go out with the mission of Jesus in ever-increasing circles. And it's interesting that that verse will become key for Luke. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, imagine a stone dropped in a pond and the circles rippling out. Well, that's what we will get in the book of Acts. Luke will use that at his framework. He will tell us, first of all, of how this unstoppable church expanded here in Jerusalem and, and then in all the towns and villages around in what was then called Judea. And then as it pushed up north into Samaria, hated Samaria in those days, and then as it reached Antioch and beyond and went into the Roman world, the ends of the earth and, and the story of Acts ends up with Paul under house arrest in Rome, still boldly preaching about Jesus and his kingdom. You might have put me under house arrest, but nothing can stop this good news of Jesus, this promise of what would happen when the Holy Spirit comes and fills our lives. So the Holy Spirit is not a feel-good factor. He is a send-good factor. It is about what energizes and empowers us to go out into our Jerusalems and Judeas and Samarias and the ends of the earth to take this good news of Jesus with us. And that is the incredible promise that Jesus and the Father makes in this book of Acts here. And it sounds like Jesus knew what was going to happen. He says you will be in all those places. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be the first time we've discovered that Jesus knew what he was talking about, would it? Yeah, he clearly knew what was going to happen. He knew that the Holy Spirit couldn't come until he had left. He spoke about that in John's Gospel very clearly. The Father won't send the Spirit until I've returned to him. You know, why? I have no idea. But Jesus knew that the Father would not send the Spirit until he had left. And so he makes this very clear promise. You will receive power. Returns to the Father, sits at his right hand and says, job done, Father. And the father says, well done, son. Now, let's just wait for that right day. Let's see if they'll keep praying and waiting as you told them to, for me to fulfill this promise. So I love this passage because, you know, it's the promise not only of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is still as relevant today. 
Christianity is not about trying our best. It's not about just doing good. It is about knowing our sins forgiven through believing in Jesus and his death on the cross, but then saying, Holy Spirit, please come and fill my life. You know, and if you've never asked, if any listeners have never asked the Holy Spirit to come and fill their lives and transform them, for goodness sake, stop right now and say, Holy Spirit, please come as Jesus promised and fill my life and renew me and energize me to become part of your unstoppable church. But it's not just that promise. I think it's important to remember too that every promise that is made in the word of God is always fulfilled. And I just say to listeners today, maybe God gave you a promise some months ago, some years ago, and you've still not seen it fulfilled yet. Don't give up on it. Don't give up on it. You know, sometimes the promises in the Bible took a long time um, for Judah to be restored to this city here that we're looking at after it was exiled by Babylon in 586 BC. It took 70 years for Jeremiah's promise to be fulfilled. But do you know what? It was fulfilled almost to the very day of those 70 years. So don't give up on the promises because the testimony of scripture is that God always fulfills his promises. So never, ever give up on them. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner, traveling from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond to track the amazing growth of the first century church and what that means for the unstoppable church of the 21st century. There are more Bible podcasts from Mike and David on the UCB Player app and major podcast platforms. Check out Jesus Then and Now or Bible Books in 30 Minutes.